You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 23rd of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. We're live from Studio One here at Midori House in London and I'm Chris Chermack. Coming up on today's program. It is very heavily uh, focused on evasion, on uh, nodes and networks and countries uh, that help evade. The U.S. imposes additional sanctions on Russia over the death of Alexei Navalny, but what can they really achieve? Also, tomorrow marks two years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We speak to a reporter who's been collecting evidence of atrocities on the ground. I distinct between the optimism, which I may be not that optimistic, but I'm very hopeful. And the difference is that if you're hopeful, you do what, what should be done. After that, we'll look at why the United States and so many other nations are returning to the moon. And finally, we'll have a roundup of the latest urbanism news with Monaco's own Carlotta Ribello. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Termack. On the day of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's death in an Arctic prison last week, U.S. President Joe Biden appeared before the press to lay the blame squarely at the feet of Vladimir Putin. Today we find out exactly how that blame translates to policy. The United States has unveiled a series of new sanctions against Russia following steps taken by the U.K. and the European Union. But with the war in Ukraine already prompting the West to exhaust its sanctions tool chest, the question is exactly what more Joe Biden can do to punish Moscow. Well, let's first hear from the U.S. Undersecretary of State, Victoria Nuland, who said that the size of the sanctions package is designed to overcome Putin's proven ability to evade many of the sanctions the U.S. already introduced. He and his um, tricksters have found a lot of ways to evade sanctions, which is why when you see this package that we're going to launch in a couple of days, it is very heavily uh, focused on evasion, on uh, nodes and networks and countries uh, that help evade, uh, willingly or otherwise, and on the banks that support and allow that kind of evasion. Well, joining me now for more on this is Washington reporter Simon Marks. Simon, we've just gotten a statement from Joe Biden in the last hour from the White House about the sanctions and also marking the two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. What can you tell us? Yes, and Chris, making it absolutely clear that these sanctions are designed to punish Russia, not just for two years of war on Ukraine, but also for the death of Alexei Navalny, the president describing him in this statement as a courageous anti-corruption activist and Putin's fiercest opposition leader. And the statement, while not going into full detail about the sanctions, certainly puts more meat on the bones. The president says he's announcing more than 500 new sanctions against Russia. They will target individuals connected to Navalny's imprisonment as well as Russia's financial sector, defence industrial base, procurement networks and sanctions evaders across multiple continents. The statement goes on to say they will ensure Putin pays an even steeper price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. And the president also announces that he's decided to impose new export restrictions on nearly a 100 entities for 
providing backdoor support for Russia's war machine. He says we are taking action to further reduce Russia's energy revenues and I've directed my team to strengthen support for civil society, independent media and those who fight for democracy around the world. Now, yesterday, Victoria Newland described this sanctions package as massive and crushing. She said it was an effort to strangle Vladimir Putin's ability to continue evading many of the sanctions that the United States has already put in place against Russia. Uh, We are waiting for the full announcement from the US Treasury Department about the precise nature uh, of these measures, and then I think everyone will get a chance to see uh, whether they stand a chance this time round of succeeding in their quest. Well, Simon, one question there is, it, it, it's interesting the way you describe uh, essentially the two-pronged attack here, that this is about Navalny, but also about uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Does it all kind of blur into one in your mind? And, and also just, there's a question about why some of these sanctions may not have been adopted before now, if they really are something that is needed. Yes, I mean, I think it all blurs into one in the minds of the administration. I mean, they view all of this uh, as exemplars uh, of Vladimir Putin's brutality. This statement says if Putin does not pay the price for his death and destruction, he will keep going and the costs to the United States, along with our NATO allies and partners in Europe and around the world, will rise. But the fact that the president is able to unveil Uh, what were being described yesterday as hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new sanctions does raise a question for the Biden administration, which is, why didn't you do this earlier? Why has it taken two years uh, to tighten the noose yet further? Uh, And how, how are you going to ensure that these sanctions can't be evaded in precisely the way that you now concede the earlier sets of sanctions have been evaded? Now, Victoria... Victoria Newland, the Under Secretary of State, uh, inferred that there are going to be measures here to try and stop countries like China and India uh, from essentially helping uh, Vladimir Putin to evade uh, some of the measures. Now, the Americans, of course, are irritated that China and India have increased their trade uh, with Russia over the last two years, rather than uh, engaged in the kind of choking off that the United States uh, has advanced. Uh, But there are also issues pertaining to the use of financial institutions in China and Russia to help Vladimir Putin get around sanctions. And the details of what the Treasury announces will be critical in understanding just how much further the Biden administration is willing to go to try and stop third parties from helping the Russian leader find a way to keep his financial institutions connected to the rest of the world. Because that's ultimately the biggest key here. If those institutions are able to find ways of remaining connected to the rest of the world, then there will always be ways uh, of evading the measures that the United States has put into place. Simon, just quickly, wouldn't also the real punishment here be funding the war in Ukraine? There is still this outstanding $60 billion funding package sitting before Congress. Is there any sense that either Navalny's death or anything else has kind of moved Congress to move on the package? 
Well, nothing has changed in the House of Representatives, but that's partly, Chris, because, as you know, they're not here. They're on recess. The president uses this statement to urge the House of Representatives to support the bill that would provide Kiev with another $60 billion in support. History is watching, he says. The failure to support Ukraine at this critical moment will not be forgotten. And while there is a majority in the House of Representatives to pass the measure, it's the Speaker of the House, Republican Mike Johnson, who fears that if he puts it to a vote, Trump's supporting far-right members of the Republican caucus will seek to oust him from the speakership, just as they did uh, when uh, Kevin McCarthy last year sought Democrat support to keep the US government open. So there is no way out of this particular thicket right now. Uh, They're not returning uh, members of Congress until the end of the month, and then they'll only have 96 hours to avert the threat of another partial government shutdown. So whether anything advances, even in March uh, in the House of Representatives, uh, I think is a very uh, is a very big question. Never a dull moment in the U.S. Congress. Thanks very much, Simon. That was Simon Marks in Washington, D.C. Now here's Tom Webb with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Chris. At least four people are dead and 14 injured after a fire ripped through an apartment block in the Spanish city of Valencia. Experts quoted in local media say flammable cladding on the building could have helped the blaze spread quickly. Mexico's Freedom of Information body will investigate after the country's president disclosed the phone number of a New York Times journalist. Andre Manuel López Orbador read out the number at a news conference of a reporter who was looking into claims of ties between the president's allies and drug cartels. And London's Victorian Albert Museum is looking for a superfan of Taylor Swift to become its official advisor on the music star. The Art and Design Museum said it's interested in the handmade signs and friendship bracelets that fans wear to Swift's concerts. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris. Thanks very much, Tom. Tomorrow marks two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, a moment that has turned the world on its head and prompted Ukrainians of all stripes to do what they can to fight for the independence of their country. Natalia Gumenyuk, a journalist and regular Monocle contributor, co-founded the Reckoning Project with other reporters in Ukraine to keep track of atrocities taking place within the country. I spoke to Natalia about her work. So this is the initiative of Ukrainian and international reporters, journalists, lawyers and analysts to document war crimes. So we as journalists do exactly what actually what exactly the journalists should do without any in any way violating the basic rules of the professions. It's just more narrow because we speak to the direct witnesses of the war crimes, not just people who seen something or who were somewhere, but every person we talked within these first days of the invasion within the reckoning project potentially can be in the trial and is potentially can be recognized either a victim or witness. And we have the team of the on-the-ground reporters, but also in Ukraine, based all over the place, which within these years talk to the people. We're speaking about hundreds of people already. And we do films, we do articles, we do other things to explain what's going on, but based on a very, very factual, verified data, which can go through the legal challenge at the same time, we have the, another part of the team, including the lawyers who 
think how to use it in possible courts, how to use those the very same testimonies and do like submissions to international bodies, would it be UN or the OEC. One of our co-founders, Janine Di Giovanni, she also covered a lot of wars within the last decades in Bosnia, in Rwanda, in, in the Middle East. So we're really also coming from the thinking that impunity leads for further crimes, just like being here, had a chance to check and speak to our lawyers. They are based here. They are of Syrian origin. So, you know, like we're looking at the Russian crimes, not just as uh, Russian crimes in Ukraine, but the fact that the Russia hasn't been stopped, you know, like in Georgia and then in Syria. They enjoyed that impunity. So they were that reckless in Ukraine. So it is. It's like combination of journalism and the legal expertise. And I feel as a co-founder of the project also I'm probably always one of the most optimistic person <laughs> maybe I don't sound like that today but I'm generally like the one which believes very strongly in justice in journalism but I feel that the journalists usually feel that we write the stories and so what so we give the way to say that it's not just they can be used for history for the records these records can survive and maybe this truth won't be denied while also the lawyers today complain that unless there is public support and concern, there won't be movement of opening the cases, investigating. So I think that in the end, this combination helps us all in the very dark times to pursue and know that bit by bit, something can happen. What has that been like for you as a journalist, if I can ask? It is a It's an intensely personal project in that sense, and, and a very difficult one, frankly. How has that been for you to interact with people? You, you talk about that you, you stay in touch with them as well. You've been getting kind of back in touch with some of these people. How has that been? A few days ago, like last week, I had a chance to speak to a family of the volunteer from the town of Berdyansk. It's a southern port not far away from Mariupol, and the man... He was a volunteer bringing the people from that place to Ukraine-controlled territory in 2022. And then he was detained for 44 days. He was really tortured brutally. He was treated in very inhumane way. Also, by the way, we figure out that later that different journalists of our project talked to around a dozen of the people from the very same facility. So, you know, like it's not aberration and like the very same way of the tortures they were used to, they, they were used in different regions, in the north, in the east, at different times. So we can speak about that system. At the same time, I talked to his wife and they now moved to another town of Zaporizhia, which is a big industrial town, but really closer to the front line, shelled, and uh, schools merely are merely not op working there because of the constant air array. Not every school has a proper basement. But, you know, that family, they, they rented the three rooms somewhere in the basement. At first, they created a hub for the internally displaced. And the, the wife, she's an educator. She started to open the classes for the kids who are in, internally displaced. English, Ukrainian, math. And Talking to me, she was really like explaining her plan how to make a kindergarten because she also thinks there is a lack and, you know, the state at least like volunteer for some people. And she was so full of energy. Her husband is going on bringing the humanitarian aid around the country. He became a very close friend with another person who helped him to left the town and the prison. And they, I thought like this 
family is moving on and they have so many plans. So how can I not be? Just so so for me it's extremely inspirational to talk to these people. I, I can't be I'm always absolutely surprised and appalled by how how people are. Just finally, Natalia, coming from that we are entering this anniversary two years since the invasion began. You described there the the people some of this mix of seeing the worst and the best of humankind. I just wonder where that sits with you as you look back on two years. How are Ukrainians feeling in this moment? Is there still some optimism that is trying to hold on to here, a sort of resilience that, that is always talked about so much of the Ukrainian people? I think we are very pragmatic. We I distinct between the optimism, which I may be not that optimistic, but I'm very hopeful. And the difference is that if you're hopeful, you do what, what, what should be done. And I do see always that things can be done differently. And, you know, we're working with the war crimes. And for me, it's important to stress that I don't look at them as a tragedy because it leaves you powerless. But it's a crime. That means somebody should be accountable and that should be the process. When I think about an attack of the missile attack on, on the capital or any other city, and you know, if not air defense, the neighborhood might be wiped out. So you see how the air defense works, that it saves lives. And as long as you argue that it should be there, it should be delivered, you understand that you can influence. So I think for Ukrainians, they're definitely not just people who are wishful thinking. They just cannot afford not to act. And that's maybe sometimes misunderstood partially, that for Ukrainians giving up, it's not an option because as long as you can save the life, as long as you can make life of any person easier, you would do that because you see the results all the time. And despite you are tired, you know, many you are tired, but you need to do things. You're not just like leaving it away, leaving that. You still find the way to, to reach the goal because you, you, you see the results. So for me, it's extremely important to say that what Ukrainians living through now, it cannot be taken for granted, as it's possible to phrase that, you know, it takes all the running for us to stay at the same place. And that sometimes is misunderstood or like the debates around Ukraine are honestly very emotional because it's like either or or like super optimistic or very pessimistic. But I think we are really, really pragmatic. Natalia Gumenyuk there speaking to me earlier during a visit to Midori House. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. This is The Briefing with me, Chris Chermak. It's been more than 50 years since the United States last set foot on the lunar surface, and while back then it was decided that travelling to the moon was no longer useful, today that seems to be a different story. Everyone from China to Japan to India, the UAE, are launching lunar missions these days, and as of yesterday, that list also once again includes the United States. In true American capitalistic fashion, this is the first commercial outfit to land a spacecraft on the moon. The astronomer and science writer David Whitehouse is here to tell us all about it. 
David, as a long-time space watcher, where does yesterday's achievement rank for you? It ranks very highly because it is part of a return to the moon, as you say, after so long. Um, in preparation for people going back to the moon in a few years' time. This is a wave of space probes, not just from the United States, but as you say, from others, uh, flown in different ways by different groups of people to gather information about the moon, information we are going to need in much more detail than we ever did for the Apollo landings. And also there are other opportunities for people to uh, explore the moon and to use the moon. So yesterday's... um, landing was uh, very important but there is still a little bit of a question mark over the landing because it was certainly an eventful descent and then um, they they had a problem with the laser guidance that measures the height of the, the the probe coming down they had to use another laser on board and quickly write a program and then when it landed they hardly got any signal from it at all now we're told that they've overcome that and that they are communicating with it. But what everybody is waiting for, and in a sense what will confirm the success of the mission, is the pictures. Uh, We haven't seen the pictures yet. Well, David, as you say, it was pretty dicey up there for a while, and we're still not entirely sure whether we'll get those pictures. What does that say about the fact that this is a commercial project? Do we really kind of trust all these private companies that are getting involved? Are they still learning? Why are they having, in a way, more trouble with something that we also did 50 years ago? Well, you're quite right. They are learning. And uh, they're obviously on a much smaller budget than sending astronauts, the Apollo astronauts, to the moon. The uh, equipment is is technically better. We have better computers, we have better rockets, we have better materials, we have better computer-aided design for this. So technically it's better, but they are small spacecraft. Uh, This one yesterday that landed cost about $150 million, um, which is quite uh, relatively not as expensive as many of the other probes. Um, And as you say, they are learning the way. Um, the Japanese probe had a very, which went down, landed uh, last month, which partly succeeded. It, it worked, except it landed upside down. That had a novel way of landing. The, the one that was launched in January had a thruster problem and never got an attempt, uh, a chance to land. So this is, if you like, as the new wave of exploring the moon with these probes and many more to come this year, there are, uh, there is a lot of learning that needs to be done. Uh, particularly if you're going to try and land near the south pole of the moon, which is a very strange place. So perhaps it's not surprising that there are difficulties, but certainly as part of this new wave of exploring the moon, those difficulties have to be overcome and there has to be a string of successes sometime soon. Well, and David, just tell us a little more about what is it about the moon right now? Why this renewed interest? Is it just sort of about prestige for some of these nations, or can we really use the moon to learn things or as a base to land on Mars, for that matter, one day? There's a bit of everything there. I mean, certainly it is prestige. Because private companies can be involved in the cost of uh, sending things to the moon and building these spacecraft has come right down. Um, certainly more people can be involved, more nations involved, more private companies uh, can actually say to space agencies like NASA, uh, we will fly your equipment. And NASA knows it can fly 
things to the moon to measure the lunar environment for a fixed price. Uh, and if they don't succeed, NASA gets a refund. They've never been able to do that before. NASA had to build the probe itself, and it always cost many times more than what they thought, and wasn't very satisfactory. So there is an ecology of nations and companies which are developing expertise to understand the moon. As a uh, part of the process of putting people back on the moon, part of the process of actually building a base on the moon. But as you say, yes, everything we do on the moon will eventually help us understand how to get to Mars. And that is interesting scientifically for exploration. But it would be wrong to say there's not a huge part of this which is grandstanding. And it's the thing that competent, big, important nations do. Just very quickly, David, finally, are, I mean, wouldn't it be easier to pool resources, even if it is cheaper these days, as you say, because the involvement of private companies, would it not be easier for countries to pool resources or are the days of kind of international space cooperation behind us? Well, there's a great deal of international space cooperation in many things. Um, but in this area, People want to prove themselves. You have the United States with its private companies and its national programs. You have the United Arab Emirates wanting to show that it's an emerging space power, similarly with Israel and Japan. And of course, you've got China, which is going to be the great rival to the United States in the future. They feel that if they've not got a space program, particularly a space program that sends people to space and to the moon, they're not a major league, space, major league world power. So this is as it's always been with space. It's science, it's exploration, and a lot of geopolitics. David, thank you very much. That was David Whitehouse there. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now, while Russia's invasion of Ukraine has expedited talks about Kyiv's hopes to join the European Union, the war also prompted neighboring Moldova to enter a formal bid. In December, the country became a formal candidate for EU membership and has set its sights on full accession by 2030. One potential stumbling block is Russia's occupation of Transnistria, a narrow strip of land in the country's east and an, unrecogni an unrecognized breakaway state where Moscow has stationed troops since the 1990s. At last week's Munich Security Conference, Monocle's Andrew Muller caught up with Olga Roska. She's the foreign policy advisor to Moldovan President Maya Sandu. I, I did want to start with the, the question of what Moldova has learned about how it makes its case to the rest of Europe, especially in the last couple of years. And I, I was taken with the letter you wrote to The Economist recently, oh. where you, you bristled at people keeping keeping on referring to Moldova as a, a former Soviet republic. And you, you're quite right to point out that that is now some time ago. But does that hinder Moldova's progress, that this is the reflex way that people still think about it? I think right now we're, Moldova as a country is probably closer to EU accession than it was to our Soviet past. So mm. that's why we would like to see ourselves as a future EU member as opposed to a post-Soviet country. In, in your view, does the Transnistria issue need to be resolved one way or the other before that can happen? Or do you see perhaps Cyprus as kind of a an example that can be followed, which was, of course, able to join the EU, despite the fact that a chunk of it is occupied by somebody else. We're working towards Moldova joining the EU as a, as a single country. Mm. But we also wouldn't want to give President Putin a veto over our EU accession, because 
if Moldova is not allowed to join EU because Russian troops are stationed in Transnistria, in Transnistria, Putin would continue doing everything in his power to protract that conflict and not let us join the EU. Just finally then, the, the last two years in particular, obviously, must have been extremely stressful for Moldova. But do you at least feel like there is a greater recognition than there might have been previously among other European countries that this is a this is something that does need to be taken seriously, it does need to be addressed, and perhaps Moldova's progress into the EU should be expedited? I think there is a clear understanding in Europe and in the European Union and European Union member states' capitals that um, Moldova is a European country that deserves to be to be member of the European Union. But also there is a clear understanding that Russia will continue to be a source of instability, a source of risk, a threat mm. uh, to Moldova and, um, and other countries in the region. And the only way to protect Moldova and other countries and bring back stability to our region is Moldova's accession to the EU. Otherwise, we'll continue fighting in this never-ending hybrid war that will probably keep us part of some, uh, I don't know, grey zone, and that would be to nobody's benefit. Ukraine needs a strong Moldova, strong democratic Moldova as its neighbour, and so does the European Union. That was Olga Roska, foreign policy advisor to the Moldovan president, speaking to Andrew Muller. This is The Briefing. Finally, on today's briefing, it is time for a roundup of stories from our cities. Carlotta Ribello, Monaco's senior foreign correspondent and producer of the Urbanist podcast, is with me here in studio. Hello, Carlotta. Good afternoon, Chris. What have you got for us today? We're starting with a city that I know very well, lived in for quite a few years. Berlin is bringing back the car. Well, uh, not very much, not so much as bringing back the car, but Berlin is not <laughs> saying space. goodbye to the car. Let's put it this way. So we know how in the past couple of years, and particularly the last two years, have seen cities, particularly in Europe, really going for uh, removing heavy traffic from its roads, um, from uh, putting limits on the sizes of Cars Paris uh, just this year uh, has uh, passed um, uh, a law, a referendum to uh, charge SUV owners more because of their bulky vehicles. Well, Berlin is basically going against the trend. Uh, the The mayor has said that they have no plans of increasing parking charges for SUVs and no plans to impose, impose new rules on their owners. This comes, of course, as no surprise to most people because for the past year, the city has been run by Kai Wegner, who is the far first right-wing politician to be in charge of Berlin since 1999. And, you know, making space for the car was one of his big campaign pledges. So it should come to no surprise that he is not following in the footsteps of Paris and other European cities. Um, this is not to say that, you know, the car will be king, but these efforts that we've seen in the past couple of years to pedestrianise areas, to improve bike lanes, to invest more in public transit instead of the car to disincentivize people from driving into the city centre. That is not the case. He is adding more parking spaces, removing bike lanes doing so, and also there's plans for an additional ring road. 
It is interesting. He's particularly removing some bike lanes. I mean, Berlin was quite actually, you know, when I was there, one of the better cities for that in terms of getting around. You even had certain streets that were for bikes only. So they were they were kind of at a high level compared to London or some other cities, but still quite sad if they're reversing that. Yes, and you know, it is it is quite sad, and it, it's a a, tre- a trend that goes against. It's something that goes against the trend of what we've been seeing in other European cities and in bike lanes in particular. Just two months after the mayor was inaugurated, they basically declared a moratorium on the current projects for bike lanes, saying that, you know, these bike-only lanes slow down the traffic by cars. And um, it's very much seen as a setback in years of campaigning to make cities uh, more safe and more pedestrian and bike-friendly. Even though um, this is a city where a lot of people drive, there needs to be options for those who don't. And uh, for you know the shared road to be safe for everyone in them, not just those behind the wheel. Well, let's move from Berlin to your home nation. Lisbon, in this case, is tackling the affordable housing crisis. Yes, so Lisbon, as with many cities, is having a massive housing crisis, uh, a mix of, uh, you know, the rise of short-term rentals such as Airbnb and other local housing, but also an increase in people from abroad moving to Portugal with higher salaries, therefore bringing up uh, the rent prices and pricing out locals. Uh, out of the city. Now, City Hall has built and renovated over um, uh, 1,500 homes. This might not seem like a lot, but in the past 14 years, it had done an average of 17 homes per year. So it is quite a lot by comparison. And there's a new program that has been set to renovate up to 2,000 vacant flat, flats across 11 boroughs. This is the city has identified uh, buildings that were empty, that were disused, that landlords were just sitting there with the uh, buildings and has put in these proposals to get people to live in them. Um, also, uh, low-income families who pay over 30% of their income in rent will now be eligible for the subsidy by the city to help them with um, rent increases. And at the same time, this is not just for the renters and the landlords. There's uh, licensing procedures in place as well to help developers to create projects that actually are affordable for people um, and to fast track the creation and completion of many of these sites. Um, The Lisbon City Hall is also initiating five housing cooperatives uh, to help give citizens the land to develop these housing uh, housing projects at a lower cost. So there's a lot happening. The solution um, is not fixed in the sense that what, hap- what works in one city might not work in the next. This is the beginning of this process, so it will be a while until we see results, but it's a very much a positive step in an issue that is affecting so many cities around the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Portugal in particular, perhaps, because they have invited and welcomed a mm. lot of people internationally. Has there been a lot of frustration about that within Lisbon? Do you think this could... <laughs> ease a little bit of that. There is a a bit of frustration, particularly because those affected are the locals being priced out of the city centre. Lisbon mainly had always been known as one of the European capitals where rent was still relatively cheap for the quality of life that it affords. And that has changed while the Portuguese-based salary has not increased at the same pace. Um, You mentioned there a lot of the, you know, uh, foreign workers that have moved, particularly digital nomads, Mm. um, that have moved to uh, Portugal And as part of these initiatives by City Hall, they also have launched a housing hackathon. And this is by using Lisbon's uh, tech sector, many of which 
come from come from abroad to help develop and design uh, innovative and disruptive solutions to help with the housing crisis. So it's quite nice to see them involved too, because what you don't want to have is a us versus them mentality. We need to remember Portugal is in a campaign year. So any sort of conversation that might bring that up and, you know, bring immigration as a problem is not a good thing to have uh, in the current discourse. Well, let's let's look at two other stories very quickly. You have the U.S. is planning to create a nationwide definition for zero emission buildings, something also a lot of places are dealing with. Yes, and it's great. It's a great idea. It's uh, being overseen by the U.S. Department of Energy and basically wants to come up with a standardized, verifiable base for defining what are the minimum uh, conditions for buildings and also how you can verify them uh, in a transparent uh, way. And this applies to both public and private entities. Uh, So you can ask for feedback from the industry, academia, uh, research and laboratories. That's what the uh, Department of Energy is doing at the moment to finalize uh, this uh, definition for zero emissions building. And the aim is really to apply this to new construction, to existing buildings that are being retrofitted and to ensure that when we talk about zero emission buildings, everyone is on the same page and not trying to, you know, greenwash uh, their uh, buildings and to make sure that, you know, the carbon emissions associated with the energy while the building is in use and during the construction phase, that all of this has the same meaning for everyone and therefore you create a more sustainable urban environment. We need to remember that the vast majority of greenhouse emissions comes from cities. So this is very crucial to lower those temperatures and ensure that global warming is being addressed. And just finally, I love this final story from Japan about a drone delivery service that has been shut down because there were quite literally no orders for it. Nobody wanted it. What happened? I'm surprised that not even the people involved in it ordered from it because you would (laughs) expect at least least one order, right? So this is uh, from a city in East Japan in Katsura, Shiba, uh, in the Chiba prefecture. Uh, And this was um, a delivery service using a drone that was publicly financed. And the idea was you know, that people could use this to get their deliveries across the city. And the program will now be shut down at the end of the next month because it did not receive one single order over the uh, course of 12 months. Now, the investment here was nearly 100 million yen. That's more or less, that's over $600,000 US dollars. Um, So it's quite staggering that with that level of investment, no one used this delivery service by the council. Um, It was meant to help revitalize Katsura's shopping district, help support vulnerable residents who might not be able to make it to the store themselves or bring it up, you know, to their houses. Apparently, everyone is more than able and capable of going to the store by themselves. Not even the creator of the service itself used the service. That's that's a very bad sign. Carlotta, thank you very much for joining us. That was Carlotta Ribello, and that's all the time we have for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Tom Webb. Our researcher was Neoma Akwe, and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I'm Chris Chermak. Have a good weekend, and thanks for listening.